0: come up and you have an incredible testimony from Tanzania like Sabrina's, you get to sit back and to listen to how God is moving a continent away from us. We all get to worship the way that we got to is all of our campuses join us now, Cactus Chapel venue. It is great to be here. You kind of have a morning like this up to this point and you go, we should kind of just maybe pray and go home. It feels like we've all been ministered to deeply, but we've got a little bit to do before we leave today. I've been given a great privilege today, and that great privilege is to, I get to wrap up this incredible series we've been in, this Revealed series. And what's been so cool about it is that for the last month, including today, we've been talking about uh, how God exists through the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, and I, I love that. I love that we're sitting back and we're talking about this reality, this thing that is constantly around us in the existence of God, and yet this thing that is infinite, we won't really understand with our finite minds. Week one, Jamie stepped up and gave us this message on the son revealed. Uh, The next week, Neil came back and talked about the father revealed. Last week, Jamie was back again, and he talked about the spirit revealed, and today, it's peace revealed. But you'll see on your notes in your bulletin that it's a little more than that. I've kind of put a dot, dot, dot on the end of that, and it's peace revealed, and so what? I think so many times I I see this, I see, well, someone will kind of preach a sermon and we're all sitting around and we go, gosh, someone says, gosh, wasn't that good? It really ministered to me and it was so great. And then it's almost like when somebody tells a joke and you don't get it, but you laugh along anyway because you don't wanna feel stupid. Anyone ever done that, where everyone's laughing, you're like, oh yeah, that was really funny. But you go home and you're like, looking it up, and you're like, I don't know, I don't get it, what's that word mean? I think our sermons can be like that sometimes. I think we kinda go, okay, great, we've spent three weeks talking about the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, the revelation of God to us, but what does it mean? Like me, asking the question, as a 35-year-old man in God's church today, how does it impact my life? What does it mean to me that God exists in three parts and yet in one? What do I do with that? And I think we gotta ask that question and we gotta be honest about it. And yet I intend to answer it today, which is a tall task. So before we get into a tall task, why don't I pray for us? God, just thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together, to sit back and to to go into your word and to deal with the fact that you do exist outside of our understanding. You exist in this beautiful place that when Moses, who you spoke to like a friend, finally got the courage to ask you kind of what you are or how you are, you you spoke to him gently and you kind of just came in and you said, this is how far I can get you. I am that I am. That's as close as you could get Moses to kind of how you exist. And so today, Lord, we're peering into something that is beyond our comprehension, and yet the things that we can know about you, I think we should know about you. Uh, Lord, I just wholeheartedly admit today that unless you show up, unless you kind of make the way, unless you enlighten and illuminate the hearts, Holy Spirit, unless you move in our rooms here at Scottsdale Bible, none of this will have an impact. So that's our prayer. Pray that you would move through me, that you would make everything fluid and clear. We pray this in your precious name, amen. So starting it off, coming out of this robust teaching where Jesus is kind of talking about how... He exists in the Trinity. And we come right out of that deep teaching, and we come to verse 27, and it says this, Jesus just goes right out of his last comments on the Spirit, and he says this, "'Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. "'Not as the world gives do I give to you. "'Let not your hearts be troubled, "'neither let them be afraid.'" Now, in order to truly understand what Jesus is doing here, we have to contextualize our audience. We have to know that in this little passage here, John, the upper room discourse in John, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And that's really important because you gotta understand these men in order to understand these words. So when Jesus is sitting there, Jesus is saying, kind of break it down into three pieces. First he says, peace, I leave with you. Now the disciples at that time must have been going, peace, peace sounds great, I'm into peace. I'd love some peace, bring it on. Jesus goes on. It clarifies, it's his peace. You gotta think, they go, well, how is it different, right? Well, how is your peace different than just peace? Is it a better peace? Because I'm into that. And then finally, he says, not as the world gives. And by this time, these poor guys have gotta be going, I, I just don't get it, what, what, what's going on here? Jesus is delineating his peace from the world's peace. And what he's doing with the disciples is he's also confronting some expectations that they have. The disciples were assuredly sitting back and going, okay, Jesus is awesome and we are his closest friends. So they have some expectations of what peace might look like. Their expectations were probably comfort. Okay, they had some expectations of what Jesus would even accomplish. You know, they're sitting back going, listen, he's raising people from the dead. He's, you know, doing all kinds of stuff that there's people are gonna notice at some point. In fact, he's probably gonna do some pretty spectacular things. A very common expectation, based on Old Testament uh, literature, of what the Messiah would do, which is, they're onto him. They're going, you're that guy. Was that he would come in, he would conquer what is now Rome. So they're thinking, okay, he's gonna come back in, he's gonna ride into the capital, he's gonna take it all over, we're gonna go back to the glory days of David and Solomon, this is gonna be awesome. Or that at the very least, he would become a powerful figure, that he would get to sit back and kind of bring all of them with him. And yet, Jesus' peace really isn't like the world's peace, is it? You see, we have perfect hindsight. So as pastors, a lot of time, it's really fun to pick on the disciples because we all really respect them, but we sort of, it comes with this assumption, like, can you believe these guys are missing the boat? And it kind of comes with this assumption, like, I would have done any better in their scenario. (laughs) Neither would, would you guys. I mean, we would have all sat back and probably done the same thing. And yet, this is where Jesus so far outperforms every other deistic figure in all of world religions. You see, they all kinda come, regardless of what other world religion you look at, they all come with this same promise, okay? Humanity, serve me, and I'll give you eternal life. But it's not gonna be great for you right now. If you look through all the world religions, if they have an eternal perspective at all, it's not a loving relationship with God in the here and the now, it's indentured servitude. And the other ones kinda just eliminate an afterlife altogether, you just keep getting rebooted into something cooler, okay? But here, Jesus goes, yeah, that's not how I work. Not only do you get me for eternity, which he'll clarify in this passage as well, you get me now. You see, because I'm leaving you with something, it's peace, whose peace? My peace, but I don't give it as the world gives. This is really hard to give an example for, but I've got one, I was really struck by something that happened recently to me in ministry. Now I'm gonna kinda just buffer something. I have a daily quota of tears that I have to meet each and every day as a deeply emotional guy, okay? My poor wife's sitting here in the front row and she's gotta live with me, so you only gotta deal with me for 35 minutes today, all right? But this story makes me cry, it moves me deeply and I think it'll move you too because it's a picture of what peace that's outside of the world's understanding looks like. And to do that, I need to introduce you to Steve and Kelly Hunink. They're good friends of mine. I wanna tell you a story about them. It was probably four or five months ago and they walked into the, the front of the venue at the end of a service and they said, hey, you know, can we talk to you for a minute? And that happens every week. I said, yeah, sure. And so they walked up and like within the first 30 minutes, I was just, or the first 30 seconds, I was just sobbing. Kelly was pregnant at the time and she started to tell me a story. Her little daughter, who would become come to uh, name Glory, uh, had a very specific condition. Glory's condition was called osteogenesis imperfecta. It's brittle bone disease. And this sweet little child that was growing inside of Kelly was just really struggling already. The diagnosis was... Uh, almost assuredly fatal, it was this reality that at some point, this is probably what would take this child's life. But they didn't know what they would get as far as how long that life would be. We sat there and we cried on that Sunday morning. And I just said, you know, I'd really like to minister to you guys. Uh, Is there any way that you guys could come in and make an appointment to come see me in my office? They said, yeah, no problem. And so uh, I I know when I'm outside of my lane, and I try to do the best job I can staying in my lane as a pastor. So I said, could I bring a friend? (laughs) And she said, yeah, that's fine. And I called in the big guns. I called in Michelle Clifford. She's our associate minister to women. Her and her husband, Jared, are are just two of me and my wife's closer friends. But Michelle has a shared experience with Kelly. Michelle and Jared had to bury their daughter, Ryan, at six months due to some uh, fatal childhood illness. And so I brought Michelle in and I sat down in my office that day and I just kind of shut up as much as I could. Because what I watched Michelle do was something that only she could do and she ministered to Kelly in the midst of Kelly's fear because Kelly had a troubled heart and she was afraid. I I just sat there and marveled as Michelle did what only she could have done in that moment because the Bible tells us that we comfort others with what we've been comforted with by God. That's in 1 Corinthians And I watched as Michelle comforted and ministered to Kelly on that day. And I was sitting there going, Lord, why am I here today? And just asking the Holy Spirit to kind of give me any lead or guidance that I needed. And I found my part, Kelly made a statement and she gave me permission to kind of share her story, but she said, I live in fear. And I said, well, why? And she said, my sweet daughter is already developing fractures. I can't protect my child. And I'm terrified every time I cough, because I don't know if I'll hurt her. And I said, oh, sweetie, that's not what the Lord wants for you. He's got something in this. I don't know what it is, but he's got something for you. Why don't we take fear head on today? And I got to lead my friend Kelly through a prayer, her husband by her side, as she took fear head on. She prayed with the Lord and she said, fear's not for me, that's not what I've been made for, that's in Timothy not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and self-discipline, and she took it on. And she said fear was not for her anymore, and we prayed through that that day. We stayed in contact, and I watched Kelly continue to develop a peace that was beyond her understanding. She left with a little something that day, and it continued to grow. It was a peace, not her peace, but a peace from somewhere else. And then a text message came. Uh, Steve was texting me, and he said, uh, hey, uh, glory's on her way. She's coming. Uh, You know, we're four centimeters long. Things are kind of progressing. We need some, you know, prayer, and is there any way that you guys could get here? I was on my way to the airport. I was flying to Toronto to preach for the weekend for Lucas Cooper, Michelle was in Flagstaff with her family. We could not get to her. We later found out why. Uh, We were sitting there, and and the texts kept coming, and Steve finally texted me. He said, Glory's here. She's arrived. She's beautiful. And 14 minutes later, I got a text that said glory's past. Her little lungs just wouldn't support her. But the text that came with it was this. He said it was beautiful. It was amazing. Whatever filled the room that day, the glory of the Lord was so thick and so present. I've never felt anything like it. It was a holy moment and we got to meet our daughter. (laughs) It's not a peace like the world's peace, is it? Shortly thereafter, I I got a call, and I was asked to do one of the hardest things I've ever done in ministry, which was to officiate the memorial for a child that lived 14 minutes. And again, I knew I was kind of out of my lane, but I titled, Part of My Sermon, Can God Change the World in 14 Minutes? And he can, and he did. The reality was this. I I sat there, and I, I knew, again, I was out of my lane, so I let Michelle speak during that time. I sat next to her husband in the front row and we just marveled at what my friend and his wife was about to do. She was so courageous that day. And again, she ministered to the couple in a way that I could not. But she courageously spoke out of a peace that she had because she'd buried a daughter and still calls God good. And Kelly and Steve sat in the front row and they had a peace as they both sorrow and celebrated. They celebrated the fact that they got to meet their daughter, that they got to spend 14 minutes with her and that the Lord would do something out of their understanding, that the Lord would do something miraculous with this life. I got to text them the other night. The feedback coming in on the story of Glory's life is already yielding fruit for the kingdom. They had a peace. See, the world says this. The world says, no, no, unless you have perfect circumstances, you can't be at peace. See, unless you have everything buttoned up and it matches this beautiful, wonderful American paradigm of what perfection looks like, peace is not for you. And I watched my friends, Kelly and Steve, say, no, the Lord's doing something inside of us that we can't explain. The Lord is giving us a peace that this world doesn't understand but that we are so grateful for. And outside of the expectations of everyone, the Lord changed the, the world in just 14 minutes. Jesus from there goes on. In verse 28, he says this, he said, "'You heard me say to you, I am going away, "'and I will come to you. "'If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, "'because I'm going to the Father, "'for the Father is greater than I.'" church, sometimes the Bible says stuff that's really hard. We gotta kind of try and reconcile what it is that the Bible's doing, and this is one of those verses. We talk all the time about how the Trinity is equal. For those of you that have your definitions all buttoned up, you've gone through your systematic theologies, you'd sit back and you'd say, God has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one is fully God, and there is one God. And then your head sort of explodes because that doesn't make sense for anything we have here on earth. And that's okay, leave him that way. I always say... Listen, you want God to be outside of your understanding, because if you have a God who you don't fully understand, he can fix the problems that you don't, okay? That one's free. You can jot that down, all right? But the reality is this. Jesus makes a comment here that grinds on our understanding of the Trinity, which is he says, the Father is greater than I. And at the same time, he's saying something to the disciples that we gotta try and figure out as well, which is this. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Now, That is, every time Jesus makes a statement talking about him going away, the disciples have two responses, fear and confusion. It's always the same. They don't know what he's talking about, they don't know where he's going with this, and they're thinking, well, we're gonna kinda be with you through this whole deal, so we don't know where you're going. It's really great here, D.A. Carson, in his uh, commentary on the Gospel of John, has a great quote, and it does two things for us that I think is really helpful. Uh, it, It gives us a beautiful explanation that reconciles the difficult statement about the Trinity there of the Father being greater than the Son, and it contextualizes the disciples' confusion. So I'm gonna throw it up on the screens. I'm not, but read it with me here. You don't have to read it, I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna read it now, here we go. It says this, it says, if Jesus' disciples truly loved him, they would be glad that he is returning to his Father, for he's returning to the sphere where he belongs. To the glory he had with the Father before the world began, to the place where the Father is undiminished in glory, unquestionably greater than the Son in his incarnate state. To this point, the disciples have responded emotionally entirely according to their perception of their own gain and loss. If they had loved Jesus, they would have perceived that his departure to his own home was his gain and rejoiced with him at the prospect. As it is, their grief is an index of their self-centeredness. Isn't that great? Now, the reality is this, that sounds wordy and, and let's break it out for just a second here. But Jesus is returning to this beautiful, rightful and glorious place with the Father. And that's a great thing. In fact, it's not just a great thing. It's a best thing. Because he's saying it's a best thing. Hey, listen, it's, it's, it's good. I gotta go. And, and it even makes logical sense, too. Earlier in this chapter, you heard Jesus say, it's good that I go so the helper can come. And unless I go, the Father won't send him. Remember that? That was a passage we just preached on a little. The nods are really encouraging. I'm gathering that you all remember the preaching. But the reality is, this makes logical sense. I, this is always where I ask that menacing question of the church. Would you rather have Jesus incarnate here on earth or the Holy Spirit which you currently have? And, and it's almost an, like a, a Christian like, reflex to go, Jesus, I want Jesus. But the reality is this. If Jesus were incarnate here on earth, here's what would happen. You better hope he's in your country. You better hope he's in your city because if not, you are still without him. But when Jesus says, it's good that I go so the helper can come, what happens? At Pentecost, the goose is loose. The spirit is alive and well. No longer is God dwelling in a temple of brick and mortar. He's now dwelling in a temple of flesh in a human heart. The spirit is alive and well in the entire church. But the disciples can't see that. Do you know why? Because their own agenda for loss and gain, their self-centeredness is in the way. I wanna apply this to our lives for just a second. And you guys can probably feel this one coming from a mile away. Has your agenda ever been in the way of God's plan for your life? Wait a minute, that's tough. Has there ever been a time where God had glory, that he wanted to work through you and for you, that you sat back and you just, no, I don't really wanna do that. Because we cling to all the things, ironically, that the disciples were clinging to. We can't, basically, here's what we cling to. We cling to comfort and we cling to stuff. Those are two things that we always work towards. And, and here, the disciples can't get to Jesus' plan. But Jesus' plan is always best for us, always best for us. You were made for something in the kingdom. And and our biggest concern is always the same. This is our concern. I, I hear people say it all the time. Well, I'm just so afraid that if I truly give my life totally over to the Lord, I'm gonna end up in a hut in Africa. Everybody says the same thing. They're just terrified. Here's what I wanna tell you today, church. If God made you in his plan and his plan for your life is that you end up in a hut in Africa, you will be horribly disappointed with anything but that hut in that country, period. You were made for a purpose. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He's got a plan for your life. And if your agenda is in the way, you need to start praying about that. You see, the disciples were made to become the foundation, I mean, on which the church would be built. They can't see that right now, but they were made for it. I would submit to you today that if the disciples had jumped ship, They would have been an internal disaster area, but they can't see the fact that these great men of God would go on to become the foundation on which we are still standing today, but they would have been miserable with anything else. But in this moment, they can't see it because their desire for gain or loss is in the way. From there we go on, verse 29 and 30 say this, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. So one, before it takes place, Jesus says, I'm telling you before it takes place. So this is Jesus' prophetic moment. And again, this is a wonderful closing discussion here because Jesus is both comforting and confronting his disciples. You guys heard, he's kind of challenging them. If you love me, you would have. This is the same thing, but he's coming back with some comfort here. And he goes, look, here's why I'm making a difficult statement because I need you to know this before it takes place. He gets it. Jesus isn't surprised by any of this. This is not a shock to him. Is anyone, in this, is anyone here today, in this room, cactus, venue, chapel, anyone comforted by the fact that God's never surprised by anything that goes on in your life? He's never sitting back going, oh, that one caught me napping. Didn't see that coming, wow. That's not how it works. The beauty of God is that he's sitting back and Jesus is modeling God's perfect knowledge right now going, hey, listen, I'm telling you this so that when it happens, because what Jesus knows is, guys, it's gonna get worse. You're all panicking right now because I'm alluding to leaving. When I actually go, you're gonna lose your minds. When I actually breathe my last, when you put me in a tomb, you're gonna realize that the guy who you put all your chips on is gone, he's not in the game anymore. And you're gonna be going, well, how do we get our chips back, what do we do now? Do I go back to tax collecting, am I a fisherman again? What's the deal? And so Jesus says, I'm telling you this, why? So that you may believe. Beautiful little tie here, okay? The the stated purpose of the book of John is this. You gotta go to the end to fully understand the beginning and forward. It's John chapter 20, verse 31, and it says this. It says, but these are written, what are these? The things in the book of John, the entire book of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, in, uh, that by believing you may have life in his name. So the whole stated purpose of the book of John is that you may believe. That's why it was written. That's why it has an impact on our lives. is because it was stated purpose by the author to say that you may believe. What's Jesus saying here? These things I'm telling to you, why? So that when it happens, you may believe. Again, so that when it happens, you'll have peace, my peace, that goes beyond. So that when you see me put in the grave, you go, oh, this is what he was talking about. It's part of his plan for us. And then lastly, Jesus makes this little closing statement here, he says, you know, I won't talk with you much anymore. The ruler of this world is coming, he has no claim on me. Dual purpose statement, church. Ruler of this world, okay, this this certainly means, John 13, Jesus looks at Judas, he gets it already. What you do, do quickly. And Judas scurries out of the room. What does Jesus know? He's on his way back, and he's not coming alone. The ruler of this world is coming to arrest him, but who else is coming? Satan. I know I say that flippantly, but the enemy. The enemy is coming to finish the deal. He's been after Jesus this whole time, but he's coming to wrap it up. And what Jesus is saying is, he didn't have a claim on me. That's not a thing. There's a myth. if we don't really understand how the Trinity works sometimes, and we're going to kind of dive into this a little bit more, kind of in my clothes. But if we don't understand how the Trinity works, we get into all these really bad, broken thought processes about how God is. And one of the ones I hear from time to time is I hear people and typically they're really compassionate or you know, they've been hurt or broken, and they say this, "I could never believe in a God who would torture and kill his son." Or I could never believe in a God who would allow this or who would allow that, but, but they really aim it on Jesus almost as this abused child. The, the problem with that is this, and I've got a verse that I, I really wanna hone in on because it makes the point of what we're reading today. It's John 10, 17 and 18, and you can kinda see these up here while I read them. It says this, for this reason, the Father loves me. Now, this is Jesus talking. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. Here's where we get screwed up when looking at the Trinity Church. We don't have an understanding of what perfect agreement looks like. Here on earth, when you put two people in a room or a hundred We are always honing to try and figure out who's in charge. We've written tomes of books on the the topic, right? Leadership, who's in charge. We are always oriented to find hierarchy, except it doesn't exist here. It's not a hierarchy. It's perfect agreement and unity. We don't understand what three beings, perfect in nature, look like, because we can't wrap our heads around no quarreling, no disagreement. We can't sit back and figure out what it looks like for a discussion to occur and there to be no existence of pride or ego. There is no way, because of the perfect agreement, that Jesus sat back and went, oh, somebody's gotta die on the cross, and the Father drug him to Golgotha, kicking and screaming. That's not what happened. What happened was at some point, Jesus sat back in the perfect agreement of the Trinity and the Father said, we've lost them. We've lost them. They've given themselves over to our sworn enemy on earth. We've lost them. And at some point, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit said, we want them back. Or as my favorite song lyric says in one of our worship songs, we don't want heaven without them. And Jesus says, I'll go. I'll go. I want them back. Well, how much do you want them back? I want them back this much. I'll do this. This is how much I want them. Arms spread, pinned to a cross. You see, he wasn't drug kicking and screaming. What's this verse tell us? He laid his life down on his own initiative. He chose to go so that he would have his children back. He wasn't abused by his father. You know, it, It's so tough sometimes, because we assign all of these different things to God, and yet I don't think that's how he functions. He functions in perfect unity. Doesn't that change the way we look at our marriages? Marriages are hard. Anyone just ripping along in their marriage, going, what a breeze, this is easy. Ah, No, you're not. Do you know why? Because Paul called it a profound mystery. Right? Chose to never do it, by the way. Tells you something. The reality is marriage is hard because it's modeled after something perfect. It's modeled after Christ's perfect love for his bride, which is modeled after his perfect love for the Father. That's why marriage is hard. That's why relationships are hard. But what you're being called to, we're gonna talk about in just a minute, I can't wait to get there, It's the perfect love within the Trinity that we are asked to model, and it's those things that when we sit back and we look at difficult things like families, marriages, broken social settings, we look at topics that are difficult like politics, race, and religion, we miss the boat. Do you know why? Because on most of these topics, if we were just to be quiet and listen to someone else's experience and love them really well, it would change the way we unify in the church but we we have a tough time doing that because we don't see the perfect unity of God. We go after correcting each other all the time. From there, Jesus moves on, and this is our close kind of for today. We're gonna start working towards this in verse 31. He says, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may believe that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now, that rise, let us go from here, doesn't that strike you as odd? Why would the author include that? This is one of the rare mic drops that we get in Scripture where Jesus sort of sits back and goes, you know this is the last thing he said because they're leaving. So when we start that beautiful metaphor in John 15 about the vine and the branches and the vine dresser, we don't know where that is, but it's not here. It's not in the upper room because Jesus, this is the last thing he says, So this is how important the statement is. We've been teaching for a month through this section of scripture, and this is the last statement. This is his bookend to this unbelievable teaching that we've been in for a month. And he says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so Jesus is being obedient, so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's really important. Jesus is giving us a pure and perfect motivation for serving God. And I want to kind of pick on a few others real quick. I think we serve God for a couple other reasons, and I wanna qualify this, because I'd I'd rather not have 600 emails to deal with this week. I'm gonna talk about a couple of things. They may resonate with you. They may even be one of the things that you go, well, I thought I was supposed to be doing that. That's fine. I'm not saying that it's the worst. I'm just saying it's not the best, okay? So let's look at the first one here. The first reason that I think we serve God sometimes is out of fear. Now, some of you are sitting back and you're going, but Rustin, it says in the scriptures that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah, that's talking about reverence. That's talking about awe. It's not talking about terror. It's not talking about, but I'm terrified of the Lord, and so therefore I serve him. That's not the father-parent relationship that's described through all of Jesus' teaching. Well, I know, but Rustin, every time the Lord showed up in the Old Testament, people freaked out and they fell on their face and they took their shoes off, whatever that means, and I, I, I get it. But that's awe, that's reverence. And so a lot of times what I mean by fear, and this is where I wanna delineate it today, what I mean by fear is that we start to fear that God will either inflict pain, comfort, or he'll take our stuff away. He'll remove blessing, okay? So we, we, we tithe, use an example here, okay? I'm tithing because I'm afraid God will remove financial blessing from me. Now, is tithing out of fear better than not tithing at all? Say yes. Yes, okay? It is. This is why I don't wanna get an email, because the next one I'm going to, even more of us are caught up in, okay? It's this. I think we serve God out of obligation. What's well, just the right thing to do, so I do it. Now, I'm not gonna ask for a raise of hands, because I'd hate to tear a bunch of rotator cuffs, how quickly they would explode up. But to many of us, that sounds like, well, what's, what's the better motivation, man? I mean, seriously, like, okay, so I do the right thing. Who cares why I do it? Jesus does. He cares why you do it. Because remember, he's not after behavior modification. He's not after the right things for the wrong reasons. Do you know what we called those people in the scriptures? Pharisees. Were they very popular with Jesus? Nope. Is doing the right thing for the wrong reason better than not doing it at all? Yes, it is. Okay, so if you write me an email, I just absolutely hated that. I'm gonna send you this 10-second clip in my sermon And I'm not gonna respond to you other than that. I'm gonna just go, yes, it is better than nothing at all. But what Jesus is doing here in this passage is he's saying it is not best because what he's modeling is a perfect motivation for serving God. And what is that perfect motivation for serving God? It's love. Listen to what he says again now with this context, okay? Verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I fear the Father. It doesn't say that. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I am obligated to the Father. It doesn't say that either. What it says is, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. What is Jesus saying? I am obedient to the Father so that you can see the perfect motivation, which is love. What does love sound like in the Christian life? Today, right here, real time in 2018, it sounds like this. He is the love of my life. Who else would I pour out my affection to? I am captivated by my first love. What else could I give my time, my energy, and my resources to? I am, I am so in love with him, how could I not respond? And you go back to that plan thing. Of course his plan is best because I love him, so whatever he's asking me to do, leading me or guiding me through, I'll take it because it's better than what I would've planned on my own. Do you see the purity of that motivation? Do you see how the other two, though they may be good, they are not best? Because that's what I need you to see today. I've got something I wanna recommend for you as we close today. This is a, a, an amazing book, and I had them order several more for our Shea bookstore. Cactus, you can get it on Amazon as well, that's where I got mine. but. This book is called Delighting in the Trinity, and it's by one of my favorite authors. His name's Michael Reeves. And he's an Oxford scholar. In fact, he's the president of their theology seminary over there. And he's an incredible guy. I got to meet him over in Poland a couple of years ago and actually have breakfast with him. He's a neat writer in the fact that he can take those of you really deep. If you wanna go really deep, he's got some of that in here. But he can also, he's very approachable and for a, lot, for a lot of you, and I kind of watched it, at least here in the room that I'm in, um, when I said Trinity today, I watched a bunch of eyes glaze over and I kind of saw this understanding of like, we're about to go to a bunch of college talk about how God exists. But I would submit to you today that, that an understanding, a deep and rich understanding of the Trinity is far more foundational. And that's why I like this book the most because right on the front cover, it says, delighting in the Trinity, an introduction to the Christian faith. An understanding of how God exists should be one of the first things we dive into, not one of the last. This isn't something just for me as a pastor because I have to preach sermons, but to sit back and to look at something that I hope to point you to in a powerful way right now is so, so important. And so what I wanna do is I wanna read a quote out of this book, and it's a little lengthy, but I think it's so beautiful because it talks about this love between the Father and the Son, And it talks about how through that we were born, out of this loving relationship, we were created. And so if you would, turn your attention to the screen as as I read this now. It says, it was his overflowing love for the son that motivated the father to create, and creation is his gift to his son. The father makes his son the inheritor, the heir of all things. And so the son is not only the motivating origin of creation, he is its goal. The Son is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of creation. Now here we come to something astounding, because the Father's love for the Son has burst out to be shared with us. The Son's inheritance is also extraordinarily shared with us. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's Romans 8:17. It is a physical expression of the marvelous truth that the Father shares his love of the Son with us. The meek shall inherit the earth. Here's what I want you to see today. Church, in every room in Scottsdale Bible, I want you to understand that if you don't ever truly look at what is going on inside the Trinity, if you don't look at God and see the fact that at the center of the Trinity, for all of eternity, a father has been loving a son and a son has been loving a father. If you don't ever look up and you see that love which is outside of you, and the fact that you were created as as that is your origin, but the creation was given. If you don't see that love that is outside of you, you will never truly let that love manifest inside of you. This is not a 400 level Christian understanding. This is 101 paramount stuff that has to change the way we live. Because if you don't see that, you don't, won't ever understand what it means to respond from it. You go, yeah, no, I, lo- I know he loves me, but I'm still just so broken, I'm still so, yeah, that's true. But remember, he sees you in this beautiful, perfect sacrifice of Christ. And what I love is this. I love that Romans says, it's his love that motivates us to repentance. It's what leads us to repentance. you know what that verse means to me? God's not gonna sit there and beat me into submission. He's gonna love me into responding to him. So we sit back so many times in our self-hatred and our shame and our condemnation, and we go, oh, if I just think less of myself, if I just be more broken, you know what God says? I love you, respond from that. Conviction should turn your eyes away from your horrible behavior and back to God, not to a deeper understanding of how shameful and broken you are. Otherwise, the Romans passage is a lie. And I'm not in in the, the habit of calling the Bible a lie. You see, this this perfect love that God has always had, he loves as a perfect parent. That's what he does. And if you think about it, this is so cool. At some point in the Trinity, which has existed eternally, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were sitting there caring for each other, loving each other perfectly. And they finally got to the point where we, this is too good. You know what? Let's create Let's let this spill over the bounds of who we are into a creation, even though that creation will never understand it, they'll never be able to fully embrace it or experience it, we will pour into them. And so God sits back and the Father decides, I will create through my son, that's John 1.1. All things that were created were created through him and nothing that was created was created outside of him. So God creates through him and for him. Why for him? Because it says he's an heir. What do heirs have? Inheritance. And Jesus was so staunch on getting his inheritance that even when humanity gave themselves away to that sworn enemy of Christ, he came back and goes, I want them back. I'll go get them. And he brings us home and they just, the Trinity just keeps loving us and loving us and loving us, but he creates through him and for him. If I were to tie this whole thing up today, it would be this. If you, if you will never let, you'll never experience the peace of Christ. You'll never experience the peace of Christ if you don't let the love of the Father penetrate your heart. You see, it's the Spirit that motivates us to love the Son, and it's through the Son that we know the Father. Do you see how, in our experience, all three members of the Trinity are always present? That's it. That's what you've got to understand. Now, the only thing, I don't just want to teach you this passage today. I don't just want to sit back and you to walk away and when you read John 14, 27 through 31, you go, oh, I remember that. Really great example about that sweet couple. Or I remember this, or I remember that. You know what I want? I want every room in Scottsdale Bible Church to respond to a deeper and richer understanding of how loved they are by God. I want the love of the Father to penetrate your heart in a new way because you go, oh my gosh, it's not just like some broken earthly love. I am being loved divinely, perfectly. Does that not make you wanna respond, church? Does that not make you wanna sit back? I don't know about you, but there's something welling up inside me that I go, I didn't know I was this loved when I walked in today. When I walked into Cactus Venue Chapel or the worship center, I didn't know I was this loved and so I've gotta do something with this. I've gotta cry out to the Lord and I'm so glad you feel that way because that's exactly what we're gonna do. We're gonna have a time of response right now. We're gonna go to the Lord and shout out of joy how good he is to us and for us. And so it's time for me to get off the stage. I'm gonna pray for us. Lord Jesus, right now, in all of our rooms, we just ask for a deep move in the hearts of your people. Holy Spirit, our prayer is so simple. Will you come and will you enlighten, will you invigorate every person at Scottsdale Bible? Will you move them deeply? If there's stuff in the way, will you make room for yourself? if there's distraction or confusion, if there's life circumstances, will you set all that aside so that every child of God today can cry and make a joyful noise because there's peace for them through the love of the Father? Will you stir, will you invigorate each one of our worship environments today that we would feel newly loved, and it's not that you're loving more, you haven't changed, it's, we have, we've understood your love better. That it's an eternal love, it hasn't changed for all of eternity, it just spilled over the bounds and, and we got created in this loving process. But even the fact that we're created out of love changes our, our response. We weren't just created to be loved, we were created out of love, through Jesus and for Jesus. Do we just? I don't even know what it is, but but God, would you just miraculously move in our midst? Would you stir our hearts in a powerful way? We pray this in your name, Amen.